Hello and welcome to Everyday Medicine. I'm Dr. Luke and in this podcast series I'll be sharing conversations with colleagues, exploring their special interests in medicine and bringing insights, ideas and advice for your medical practice. In this podcast we'll be talking with an expert about knee and hip surgery. In the year 2017-2018 in Australia there were 54,100 knee replacements and approximately 33,000 hip replacements with up to 61,000 knee replacements projected to take place in 2030. Conventional approaches to joint replacement have been disrupted by robotic assistance, knees, and the adoption by some of an anterior approach to hip replacement. To discuss these subjects in more detail, including patient selection, advantages and disadvantages, we are joined by experienced orthopedic surgeon, Mr. Andrew Tang. Andrew is also the Head of Orthopaedics at Epworth and presides over their Detailed Joint Audit Committee. Please welcome Andrew Tang. So Andrew Tang, thank you very much for joining me today on Everyday Medicine and uh, I really appreciate you making the time out of your busy schedule um, to come and talk with me about both robotic knee surgery and the anterior approach to hip surgery. Uh, the two areas that uh, I'm interested in hearing about. Uh, just before we launch into that, can you tell us a little bit about your journey towards uh, orthopedic surgery? I know you're, you're the head of the orthopedic unit at Epworth. Mm. Very, you have a very good reputation and uh, you're, you're um, looked at very high esteem by your colleagues. T- tell us about how you got there. Well, uh, I suppose it goes back to how I got into medicine. So when I did um, HSC, as it then was, uh, I did pretty well, actually. Um, did averagely for English, got a C, which was my predicted mark. But in every other <laughs> subject, I, I did extremely well. So I had uh, the marks up my sleeve. And initially, in fact, I did not apply for medicine. Both my parents are doctors. My father was a GP in Dandenong uh, for a long time. I think you would have seen some of his patients, actually. Yes. And my mother uh, was a cytopathologist based at VCGS initially and then the Alfred. Um, and uh, after having grown up with medicine in the family, I actually made a decision in my VC or HSC year that I would not do medicine. And in fact, I applied for science law and uh, got in. Then in those days, there was a second round of tra- chances to change your option. And for some bizarre reason, after being very happy with science law, I thought, I'll oh, bugger it, I'll go for medicine and I applied for medicine and I got in. Now, that wasn't all of it because at that stage I was 15 years, 15 and a half years old. I was way young really? to get into medicine. Yeah, I did. Uh, I turned 16 in the uh, year, uh, just the year following my HSC. Oh, so uh, David Pennington, whose son Tony was in the same year of uh, med school with me, was the vice chancellor. Uh, then, oh no, not by chance, it was the Dean of Medicine then. And I had to go for an interview with um, uh, David Pennington and my mother came along. And uh, that year I had won a prize in pure and applied mathematics and one of the books that the school had allowed me to choose from, I can't remember the bookstore now, but they were almost certainly shut, was a, was a collected short stories of, Hercule, of Agatha Christie about Hercule Poirot, okay. right? And uh, so in an attempt for David to find out whether I was mature enough to go to uni, 
we started talking about things outside my life. Now, I was a Chinese boy, very young, parents, highly successful doctors, spent all my time studying. What do you think I knew about life outside of school? I went to an all boys school. It, that was that was a no brainer. I was going to fail that question. So we talked about Hercule Poirot. I'd not read a single damn story. I'd seen Murder on the Orient Express on TV, I think. <laughs> and I BS'd my way through that. Uh, and after the interview, I said to mum, that's fantastic, actually, because I'm happy to go back to school. Because at that stage of school I went to had a policy that you weren't school captain uh, in the year you did VCE. You had to come back to do that. And I, I figured I'm, I'd have a shot purely by elimination of, of getting either captain or vice captain of the school. My cousin, Peter, had been captain of the house uh, in his VC year, which I think was a year ahead of me, um, or HSC year. So I was absolutely resolved that I was not going to go to uni that, uh, in 1980 because uh, I, I figured I would, I'd be rejected on uh, maturity grounds. And funny enough, uh, mum got a call that night saying I could start. So I went back the next day to register at uni for the courses. But for that first year, it was very, very difficult for me. I was not 18 yet. Um, and, uh, you know, I was, at, uh, I was a non-resident at Trinity College. Um, and the, the, the dean's big test for me was he didn't think I'd do that well in psychology, psychiatry or psychology. So the first essay we ever had to do that term was on uh, Roger's theory of the self. Uh, and somehow I managed to score an A on that one. Uh, but I'd always taken a very pragmatic approach to writing essays. There was no plagiarism in it, but it was pretty closely following the text. Well, why did you, because you your dad was in general practice, you yes. must have thought, why did you go into orthopaedic surgery? How, how did that happen? So my life has always been serendipity. I went, muddled my way through medical school, uh, was not the brightest student in my year. I somehow managed to make it to the finals of the medical prize, but nowhere near the surgical one. I entered uh, training at Royal Melbourne Hospital and did surgery, anaesthetics, and general med as we all do in the first year. And in the second year, I decided I didn't really, I knew I was not cut out to be a physician. That was for sure. Uh, so I then went and did an anaesthetic term. I thought that might be interesting, but gravitated towards surgery and even then didn't know what I was going to do. In my third year, I went to anatomy school because that's what everyone did to get their first part. And I came back in my fourth year as a SRMO at Royal Melbourne. And at that stage, did a vascular surgery term and a general surgery term. Um, and I was actually applying for general surge with my first part. And uh, the head of orthopedic surgery then, Mr. Kevin King, who subsequently became president of the AOA, bailed me up in the corridor one day and said, what are you doing next year? And I said, oh, I'm applying for general surgery. I think I'll do vascular. And he said, well, the orthopedic applications are open and I would advise you to apply. Now, if the head of the unit tells you to apply, you apply. I'd done an orthopedic term of three months and enjoyed it, but I didn't think it was me because of the preconceived idea you need to be big, strong and bulky, and that's not me. Uh, but I applied and I got in. And very interestingly enough, Looking back on it, I'm a firm believer that people end up where they're supposed to be and they end up doing what they're supposed to do. And now I understand completely that I am doing what I should be doing. Uh, orthopedics and I have a very good fit. And in fact, uh, I, any other branch of surgery would not have fit me. It, it is strange how we sort of just, we just find our way into these niches. Yeah. And they become, well, we become them, they become us. Yeah. I, I think for orthopaedic surgery, my observation is you actually do need very good skills. You know, that, that opinion that you have, you know, that we all have. Just, you know, 
strong. So. Yeah, dumb as an ox. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I wasn't going to say, but I think that's, you know, that, that's, not, that's not the case. And, and you're demonstrating that with what you do, which leads us to the idea, well, the discussion on robotic knee surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, could you tell us about that? What, what exactly is robotic knee surgery? Why right. are we doing it? So to discuss robotic knee surgery, we have to go back to the origins of knee replacement. And we're talking about robotic knee replacement specifically. So when we do a knee replacement, we aim to get the implants put in in a certain alignment. Uh, There is a debate now about what that should be, but traditionally it's along an imaginary axis called the mechanical axis of the lower limb, and that goes from the centre of the hip through the centre of the knee to the centre of the ankle. And the closer you get to that imaginary axis, the better the balance across the implant surface is going to be. Traditionally, we use mechanical implant, uh, mechanical jigs to do this, and they were fairly accurate. I've gone back and done validation studies of mechanical jigs, and they were accurate to within plus or minus three degrees. Now, three degrees is actually not a lot when you're looking at the length of a limb. It's actually three mils offline. Uh, and with mechanical alignment, we were getting there. In the mid-90s, Australia became one of the two countries, one of two countries in the world with a national joint replacement register. So every joint that has been done since the mid-90s is on this register. We've got nearly a million and a half to two million joints on it now. And uh, as you intimated in our little pre-talk spiel, uh, we do more knees than hips, that is correct. On that joint register, we can follow the life of every implant. And we know what the revision rates for aseptic loosening, uh, instability, infection, etc. are. And the aseptic loosening rate, we believe was affected by the position of the implants. So in an attempt to improve the position of the implants, the first evolution was computer-aided navigation, which came along in the early 2000s, where through putting sensors on the leg and with or without imaging-based technology, we could get a real-time idea of where the limb is in space in an operating theatre. And by putting um, guidance probes on the cutting tools and the cutting blocks, we could navigate the blocks into position and then cut the bone. And that was the next step in improvement of accuracy. Now, at that point, there was a debate because Australia's always in orthopedic surgery been regarded as the bellwether country. If there's new technology from the States or Europe, we use it and Australian surgeons will use it every which way, destroy it, and what comes out at the end will be very valuable. Mm-hmm. And for that reason, we took as a group to navigation far more than any other country in the world. And we had the backing of the joint registry. Now, it took 10 years, but uh, in uh, 2010, 2012, we got the 10-year results of navigation. And in fact, navigation used for knee replacement placement improved the outcome in survivorship in a very specific group, males under the age of 68, all right? And in that group, the implant survivorship was improved by about 1% after 10 years. Now, 1%... In 500,000 joint replacements is a hell of a lot of joint replacements, 5,000 joints, okay? So that was significant. One day, someone thought to themselves, well, if we're navigating the cutting block into position, why wouldn't you just navigate the cutting tool? And at that stage, the saw blades were whippy. There was no technology to ensure that. But as time progressed and robotics improved, we reached a point where it was viable to navigate the cutting tool and let it cut. So with a robot-assisted knee replacement, the saw blades are thicker. The accuracy is phenomenal. Uh, we've just done a uh, 
validation study at Epworth, and uh, we are within plan around one degree to half half a degree. So we're within one millimeter of where we should be. That is less than half the thickness of the thick saw blade we use for a robot assisted replacement. So now we can get all the kinematic data about the knee because we've got the navigation technology from before. We know what the knee moves like before. We know what its alignment was before. With the software available with robotics, I can plan the position of the implants that I want to put them in before I even see the patient in the operating theatre. And the new frontier in knee replacement surgery, because there have been waves of technological challenges we've had to deal with as time progresses, the current one is this concept of instability and joint balance. And the robot system and other systems allow us to assess uh, in real time uh, soft tissue balance in the joint, inflection, extension, and through range. It's the most amazing thing you'll ever see. So you plan this now. You've got the tools to plan where you want to put your implant and get your balance right. And we finally have the tool to accurately execute that plan. Now, that is not to say that uh, your surgeon is not good at doing it because knee replacements do very well in general. We know that from the registry. Uh, and using the old techniques, we're fairly accurate. But with this new technology available to us, we really know what's happening at the articulating surface now. It sounds like you can have a better articulation post-replacement than I could even before. Yeah, well, it won't be better than before, but let us not forget the knee is a rotating hinge. It's not a pure hinge joint. Mm -hmm. And the, the beauty and the difficulty is that screw home mechanism at the end of extension and unscrewing when you flex your knee up. And that's always been very difficult to produce because there's a constant race in the knee joint between wear of the polyethylene and normal and uh, mechanical movement. If you have a rotating platform, something's got to be pivoting on some point, and that introduces the concept of wear. So as I mentioned before, there were technological challenges, and one of them was actually the geometry of the bearing surface. And most bearing designs now go to a constant radius of curvature. Andrew, so there's no point loading. You're passionate about this. I feel like I should become an orthopedic surgeon now. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I see why you'd be a great mentor uh, yeah. with, with your trainees. Can I ask you, do you, like your selection of patients, so you've got a very good system now, Yeah. Uh, you know, per, almost perfect system perhaps, with things to be refined maybe in terms yes. of speed and so forth, but do you, do you try and, like what's your selection? Is every patient a patient for this? For robotic surgery? Yes. Right, so for me... I did a lot of knee replacement without robotic surgery, and in the last two years, as it's become introduced primarily at Epworth, we are the biggest joint replacement centre in the country at Epworth, okay. and we are the busiest robot replacement centre on the eastern seaboard. We do over 4,000 joint replacements at Epworth a year. Uh, yes, it's a huge experience. Isn't right. It gives yep. you a lot of experience. From, from guys there. So for me personally, I went from... I wasn't keen on the robot. As director, I had to advocate for my younger surgeons who wanted to use it. Uh, I relied on my past experience saying, you know, the Mark I eyeball in my hands are going to be better than any robot I ever come across. I had done a lot of navigation as well, but the software for the robot is generations ahead. When it came, I was sceptical and I uh, did very few. But the more I did it, the more and the more you understand the technology and what you can do, the more you realize it improves your consistency. So the number of outliers in results, and we all get them, is reduced okay. using this technology. It's an aid. It's a tool for us to use. So now I do 100% of my joint replacements okay. as robot-assisted. 
Um, and I'm fortunate enough to work at uh, hospitals which have it, including, by the way, St John of God in Berwick uh, uh, and Waverley, which is the other hospital I operate at, and, and, and as well as that at Perth. Is your operating time about the same as your... I am time neutral. And in fact, sometimes I could be a bit quicker. Okay. But I'm time neutral with regards what, to What normal. about the, the, the post-operative recovery for the patient? They get a better result because their alignment's great, but right. uh, what about their recoveries? So the alignment is improved and we extrapolate that the longevity of the implant will be as good as, if not better, than navigated knee in certain age groups. All right? The, there are wild claims made about robotics by the companies that produce the robots about shortened length of stay and uh, improve function at six weeks. Now, there are actually very few papers about this. Um, there are, but they all tend to indicate that. We're lucky because we've got the joint registry in this country and Epworth actually is involved in a patient-related outcome measure study, now looking at specifically whether the robot patients do do better. Mm. That result will not be out for a while because we need numbers to make that significant. But anecdotally, mm. speaking about my own your, patients, your uh, my impression is that they do see me at the six-week mark functionally far better than they used to. Uh, so I do believe that it will be demonstrated in this trial we're running and in other trials in the world. But uh, obviously, we have to have hard data before we make any comments. Andrew, that's an incredible run-through on that topic. Thank you very much for that. Pleasure. Uh, uh, can I also ask you another question now yes. about another another joint, mm. the hip joint, mm -hmm. and your your impressions and um, comments about the anterior approach to a hip replacement? Right. Uh, t tell us about that. Is that something we should be considering? Okay. So uh, with hip replacements, there are three traditional ways to get into the joint. Everyone says the anterior hip is new. It's not. It's actually been around for a while. You can come in from the front, which is the anterior approach. You can come in from the side, uh, which is a hard or lateral approach. And initially it was uh, another type called a charnley where you took the trochanter off. And you can come in from the back, it's supposed to approach. Each of these approaches has got its benefits and disadvantages. But the take home message is, and this has been documented in studies, at six weeks, there is no difference in outcome between front, side or back approaches to the hip joint. The patient's functions the same their pain relief, et cetera, is the same. So there has been a push recently because it was said that anterior hip improves your function dramatically and you get up and get going. But in fact, the study proves that is not the case. Yeah, that's the same at six weeks. So the other one therefore comes down to surgeon preference, patient choice, and what they want from their scar. So let's go through these. The anterior approach to the hip is a smaller incision. Uh, it's a muscle split rather than a muscle dividing approach. The advantage, therefore, is the smaller scar, but the disadvantages with the anterior approach, as is being reflected in the joint registry now, and uh, as we actually found at Epworth, because Epworth does a lot of hip replacement, and in fact, in the years 2014 to 2016, the approach levels were split, anterior, lateral, and posterior, evenly, 30% each. So we went back and looked at over 2,500 joint replacements done in that period and looked at their complications. The biggest worries for uh, hip replacement surgeons are immediately dislocation of the hip and fracture of the femur when you're putting the brooch down and implanting. The dislocation rates vary approach to approach. The lowest dislocation rate actually is the lateral approach. Uh, anterior and posterior have higher dislocation rates with posterior being higher than anterior. The fracture rate 
at the time of implantation, what's called a calcar split, is the same for all three approaches. But the consequences of that fracture are vastly different. So if you do a lateral approach or a posterior approach and you fracture the femur when you're broaching or implanting, you can see it. You feel it and you see it straight away. Uh, and the treatment for that is to remove the brooch of the implant, wire it up with a circlage wire to restore the integrity of the bone tube and put the implant in like you would normally. There is virtually zero consequence to a calcar split when you, when you can see it and fix it at the time of surgery and that's with the posterior and lateral approach. What we found at the Epworth Hospital through our study was that calcar fractures are not recognised at the time they occur in an anterior hip and the reason for that is visualisation is not as good as the other approaches. Uh, and I would say even the anterior approach guys say that. All right. Uh, they have to use curved brooches, this, that and the other. And in the early days of uh, anterior, there were some very amazing x-rays that floated around the world, uh, which I won't go into now. But when you fracture the calcar at an anterior, you can't pick that you fractured it. The patient then goes back to the ward. They get up, they walk around and there's post-op pain. And then usually in the week to 10 days afterwards, something catastrophic will happen. Uh, they fall down and when you take the x-ray, there's this fracture now of the femur with a complete segment that's come off. Mm. Now in that scenario, you can't just wire it up, it's another operation mm. and you are revising your femoral component. So that's an early revision. Mm. And the one thing orthopedic surgeons hate is their own figures to represent high revision rates. Mm. Mm. Um, so that is the downside to the anterior approach. The pluses for the anterior approach are scar-related, uh, supposed ease of mobility, although, as I've said, the studies don't demonstrate that. Uh, and when it's done by someone who knows what they're doing, it is a really good approach in their hands, right? So it's horses for courses. And uh, in fact, when you talk about anterior hip, one of the uh, pioneers actually works in Melbourne, I won't name him, but uh, there are a lot of people in Melbourne who do a lot of anterior hip replacement who are very good at what they do. But they know about all of these issues and they pick them up early. And in fact, through our audit at uh, the Epworth, where we found we were getting a very high revision rate for anterior hip replacement when we first looked at it, we then sat down as a group uh, and said to the guys who do it, this is, these are your results. This is what we need to get for. We want to get back towards the norm. I want you to sit together and come up with strategies on how to improve that. And they did. Now, I predicted at the time that it would take eight audit cycles, and our audit cycle and uh, is three months at Epworth, and our audit is actually the most extensive in Australia. I get 90 surgeons attending. Every variance for that three-month period is gone over with a fine-tooth comb. This audit goes on for three and a half hours. I predicted it would take eight audit cycles or two years for us to see a difference in outcomes, but I was very, very pleasantly surprised by um, the group. They got together and they sorted out, and now the complication rate and the revision rate for anterior hip done by a surgeon who is experienced is no different to anything else. The experienced ones always did very well, but what we did was we got the younger guys coming back to think about what they were doing and how they could improve it, and, uh, you know, perfect. So the take-home message is all three approaches are safe. Pick your surgeon and let him, once you've picked him or her, do the approach they are most familiar with. So I anticipate your next question. Do I get patients coming to see me 
was saying I want an anterior hip? And the answer is yes. And I will then go through what the anterior, the lateral, posterior is. And after that, if they say, do you know what, I'd rather have the anterior, I send them off to my colleague who does a lot of anterior hip replacements. Um, and I've got no shame in doing that. Uh, in that way, I am, I accept slightly unique because I believe in uh, that if the group benefits, the individual will benefit. That's always been my philosophy with regards to how you run a unit or um, people working in your area. Um, I, and, and I accept that may be different. Andrew, that's an incredibly detailed and very honest approach to the whole subject. I really appreciate that. And I think it, what I'm surprised at with this conversation is how, how much science and thought you're putting into these audits and uh, the benefits um, it's putting us to shame as physicians, to be honest. I, I really appreciate that very much, and I can see why you're so well considered and thought of uh, in, in, uh, in, in Melbourne amongst orthopedic surgeons and your physicians alike. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure, Luke. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciated Andrew attending today. That was a great conversation with him. The more I talk with surgeons about their chosen specialties, the more I appreciate how scientifically they approach the subject to improve patient outcomes. Now, during this podcast series, we'll be covering a wide range of topics across many special interests. The discussions are not intended as specific medical advice for patients, but as general information only and reflect the opinions of the guests interviewed. Requests for new topics to be reviewed and comments about the conversation you've listened to are welcomed and may be emailed to manager at geohealth.com.au.